Well, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. And we are beginning a sermon series today that's just going to be for the next two weeks here after today. Go walking our way through Advent and looking it through the lens of Christmas prayers, we'll call them. Some of them, I guess, technically would be songs, but they're sort of songs of praise. So I think they qualify as prayers. And we're going to look at one today from Mary and then next week from Zechariah, who was uh, the father of John the Baptist. And then the week after that from Simeon as well. And our hope is my goal is, as we walk through this, is uh, I guess three or fourfold. One is to maybe give us a fresh lens on some things that are perhaps familiar for many of us, even uh, maybe if we're just new or fresh to our sort of spiritual walk and walk with the Lord. We probably are generally familiar with from our culture, the the reality of Jesus coming into the world, the manger, the donkey, Mary, all of these things. So we've got an overall picture, uh, but but sometimes it's helpful to sort of have a fresh lens, take a take another angle at it, look at it from the side, from a little different perspective. And I thought going through just the prayers in the first couple of chapters of the book of Luke surrounding the time of Jesus's coming into the world would be maybe a fresh lens for us. So that's that's one reason, one method to my madness. Uh, The second thing I thought about is that it gives us a specific application. Uh, probably most of us, if we're walking in relationship with the Lord, we're thinking about, we're cognizant, okay, this is the Advent season, it's a certain month, and I I ought to be seeking the Lord in some particular way. I I ought to kind of be drawn closer to Him, and I want to, you know, do that myself, my spouse and I, if that's the case for you, me and my kids do that, we want to draw closer to the Lord, but but it's hard sometimes. It can, that can be kind of generic, sort of general. It's hard to have a specific focus. Well, as we walk through these prayers, uh, what I hope we'll think about is, is at least this month, how can we pray? How can we reflect in our prayer life some of the things we see reflected in the biblical prayers? So if, if, if nothing else, uh, in the midst of all the busyness and clutter and shuffle of this month and the family times and so forth, if nothing else, we can at least uh, have these prayers from folks in Scripture as a model for us to be praying and for us to use prayer as a specific way to draw close to Jesus. So that's that's the idea here. So it gives us a specific way to do that. And then um, and then I would say just in general, and we've been meeting for prayer in Sunday school this month, we've kind of set aside our time to hear from some of some in our church about their prayer journey and then really set aside the rest of the Sunday school hour for prayer, because uh, you might say tis the season. Uh, tis the season for us to be praying about a lot of things. We've got some real positive things. Our missions month coming up. We just mentioned the, the land opportunity and the need for prayer for that. Uh, probably for a lot of us, the holiday times, Christmas time, Thanksgiving is a challenging time as much as it's a positive time. So we need prayer in that way. And then we just got our ongoing uh, brokenness and sin, uh, some of which seems to be landing in particular heaviness on our uh, church family in recent months. So uh, we've got these uh, staff transitions as well. Lots of things to be praying for. So it seems like a particular pivotal time for us as a church to pray. And so it seemed like it made good sense to look at 
What do the prayers at the time of Jesus have to say? And maybe those would help us to pray about those broader things as well. So that's the uh, that's the hope that I have. And uh, in a moment, we'll read these verses. But let me just say, first off, that as we look at this passage, um, if you're like me, I didn't grow up in this particular uh, church tradition that we're a part of, but I grew up in a, a Protestant background. And if you're uh, I had a number of friends growing up in the Chicago area for, who were from a Roman Catholic background. So depending on where you come from, it's kind of interesting how you might view this prayer from Mary. This might be highly familiar to you. It might be something you're very accustomed to, especially if you came from a Roman Catholic background. It's interesting how in the Protestant background, I guess in an attempt to maybe compensate for what, what would be perceived as a little overemphasis in the Roman Catholic camp on Mary, we, we maybe have swung the, the pendulum so far that, that perhaps none of us, many of us have never really looked at these verses or studied them, which are in Scripture or in God's Word for our benefit. So I think this is, uh, this is going to be, be good. Our, our, our music team just brought out a little bit of Latin, you know, they're showing off for you, singing Latin. So, so I'll, I'll bring a little bit of Latin today. I didn't even remember that they were doing that. Abusus usum non tollet. Abusus usum non tollet. I know you all use that phrase all the time. It's a good one. You can stick, stick this one in your noggin. It just means abuse does not negate proper use right so the fact that maybe something's been taken a direction like mary and all that she means in a way that we don't maybe fully agree with doesn't mean that we shouldn't understand who she is and what she means for our faith and learn uh, from her does that make sense abusus usum non tollet you guys can stick that in your pipe and smoke it (laughs) or what it's worth all right Mary's uh, song of faith here. She was a woman of faith. That's what's amazing uh, about her and what we miss. If we miss this prayer, it says in verse 45, before we even look at this passage, she's talking uh, with her cousin, Elizabeth. Elizabeth says, blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Okay, so we want to grow in our faith, want to grow in faith through prayer. Mary's prayer is at least one that we ought to look at. Why don't you stand with me as I read aloud and you read along silently uh, God's word. Starting in verse 46 of Luke chapter 1. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of mercy. He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. You may be seated as you do. Let's uh, pray again together. Oh, Father, we uh, pray for this time in your word that you would teach us in particular, that you would grow our faith, grow our faith through prayer and allow those prayers to be centered on what this Advent season ought to be centered on. We ask in particular that we would learn 
what a Mary is saying when she prays and that through learning what she says, then we might be given words that we can use in our songs of praise, in our prayer life of praise to you. And Lord, that like her, all of these things that we learn and would apply and be able to pray would come downstream from the reality of who Christ is, just as who Christ was uh, informed and directed her to give this prayer of praise. We ask that our growing knowledge of who Christ is in our lives would inform our prayers of praise to you as well. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've been on a little uh, U2 band kick the last couple of months since they released their free album. And I may have even mentioned before uh, one of their songs, a, a song for someone that's on the new album. Maybe you've heard it. Maybe you've listened to it. It's an interesting song. And again, I, I, I don't feel like I need to play a game of substantiating more or less U2 spirituality, but uh, take it for what it is. They sing, they seem to sing about some th- songs that relate to the Lord. So as you look and listen to that uh, song, song for someone, it, it's interesting. It's very clever, particularly for someone who's, um, who's not, as you know, from listening to me, many of you each week, not always so savvy with my words, not always so clever and careful to be able to, to sort those things out, to listen to somebody who's really a poet of our time. And it, it comes up with a song that, that's clearly about uh, Jesus and about the, the Lord. It starts out talking about the fact that he's got a face not marred by beauty. Sounds just like Isaiah 52 and 53, that Jesus was, you know, not somebody with beauty that we would behold him. And then later on talks about the, the fact that we've got scars and, and that uh, that that Lord has gone through that journey uh, with us. And ultimately that that we need him, right, uh, to be on that road to the Calvary that he was on. We, we need his work in uh, Calvary to, to, to save us. Uh, we, we really believe that and really believe that we have that need. And that song is beautiful, though, because it's interesting because it's entitled a song for someone. And here's what's clever about it. Have you thought about it? It's a play on words. The question that you encounter when you start to sing the song is, who is it about? Who is the song for going towards But it also can be turned the other way around, that it's a song for someone, for anyone to sing. Right. It's Chris's song. It's Ben's song. It's Casey's song. It's a song that any one of us can sing. And I thought about it this morning as we were were looking at Mary's uh, song of praise. Really, I'm calling it a prayer because it's a form of prayer and song. But but that we learn the same thing from her. Mary's got a song that she's singing to the Lord. That's her song. But it also can be our song. We can also grow close to the Lord through it. Uh, We don't have a a ton of time this morning to dive into every detail of it. So forgive me as I kind of move on through the bits and pieces of it. But but wow, there's a lot that we can take from it. First of all, and if you're following along in your uh, in the back of your worship guide, you may want to today. There's about eight or nine different points that we're walking through, and it might help you to encapsulate it, even if you don't normally look at that sermon note section in the back of the worship guide. Number one, we see that uh, Mary in her prayer life is doing what we can in, in our prayer life, and that is reflecting God's greatness. Look at verse uh, 46. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord. 
That's an interesting phrase. You know, there's some stuff in the Bible that, you know, is just sort of strange verbiage and that we don't always uh, get, but we maybe start to use regularly. But even that word magnify, I don't use that word all that often. But right right there it is. And that's where the, the, the term, the magnificat, comes from. And so it's interesting to think about what is she saying? Her soul magnifies the Lord. Does she somehow make God bigger than he already was? Probably not. Does she help demonstrate who God is in his greatness to those around her or to her own self? That seems to be part of the idea that that, that somewhere from within, okay, it's her soul that's magnifying the Lord, not just her exterior or not just her thoughts. It's, it's from the center of her being, the spiritual reality of who she is. She's magnifying God. She's demonstrating him to be great and glorious and wonderful in all the ways that he truly is in a way that's not only just between her and God. Right. It sounds like she's uplifting God, but also demonstrates that to anyone around who might be listening or might be ready to absorb what what she's saying about God. So she's magnifying the Lord between herself and those around her. And it's interesting. She's magnifying him, especially when you compare it with the next verse as Lord, as master, as ruler, as king. She's glad for the fact that she knows and is experiencing the one who reigns over all things. And we sometimes chafe at that because we know if you've got a master in the Lord, then you've got to follow that master and Lord. You've got to submit to that. But, but boy, it's, it's a privilege to, to have and to be able to know the Lord, the master, the true one, because then we can know which way to go. We can know the right way to travel in our life. It's actually a blessing. She's seeing that. We tend to see the downside. She's excited about the upside. She magnifies the Lord. Uh, the second thing we see is that she's rejoicing in God as Savior. Okay, so if magnifying is sort of God directed with a, a little bit of outward focus, rejoicing is her saying, I'm having joy. I'm experiencing celebration in, in who I am and who God is as my Savior, as the rescuer. And certainly in contrast to the verse before that describes God as Lord, Master, and Ruler, here we have, you know, sort of the other side. We often talk about Jesus being our Lord and Savior. Here it is, right, laid out, that he's the one that rescues us, that redeems us. What did Mary have to be rescued from? Well, you know, at the very least, as God has informed her of what's taking place, she's rescued from, just at a surface level, from kind of the shame. Remember, this story is sort of shameful on the surface. She's an, she's an unwed Mother Mary is. And so God is revealing her that and kind of rescuing her in that way, showing her that this is all part of his plan. But even more than that, as we see in the first part of Matthew, for instance, at the time of the advent, uh, Jesus is coming into the world to rescue us, to save us from one particular thing. And that's our sin and the consequences of it. The death that we deserve, the spiritual death that we that we have outside of Christ and the physical death that comes uh, through our fall. And in that sense, he's kind of the second Adam. He's reversing everything that happened in the fall. We we commented on it this morning in our catechism time, a little bit of complicated verbiage there. But just saying, hey, we're broken in our nature. We come into the world broken and then we add on to it with our own actions and deeds and thoughts. And Jesus comes into the world to save us. And rescue us from that. So uh, a couple of application points on, I guess, those two 
two initial thoughts. Uh, You know, as we think about our prayer life this Advent season, what will it look like for you and me, maybe individually, in some times that we carve out uh, as regularly as we can, or maybe with our families together, with our our spouse or with a group of friends or or whoever we can get get together and pray with? Uh, What will it look like for us to magnify the Lord, recognize his greatness, that that's part of our Advent season to magnify him and honor his greatness? And then along those lines, what will it look like for us to rejoice in him as our savior? So one of those things that God wants to do in our hearts through prayer is help us to look up and lift up and see his lordship and magnify him. And then also celebrate the fact that he's rescued us, that he saved us. Third thing we see in these verses is that Mary is recognizing God's blessing. Aren't you guys amazed that I came up with R's for all these things? Come on, that's, no. M was a little hard. I tried to go with M first, magnify. That was a little more tricky, but there's a lot of R words. Recognize God's blessing. Verse 48, look at that with me. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For from, for now, behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Uh, Look back with me if you've got your Bible handy, just a couple of verses earlier in verse 42. Again, we don't have the whole context in mind, but Elizabeth is, is, is pregnant at the same time with John the Baptist. John the Baptist is going to come before and declare who Jesus is. And in verse 42, Elizabeth says to Mary, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And that blessed word is kind of a churchy one, too. It just means benefited by God. She's benefited by God. And I thought about it because the, the, the reality, the experience that Mary has, none of us can replicate. Right. That was a special thing at one point in time in history. Uh, nobody will ever be blessed in that particular way. But there's a much broader application when when, she, when we recognize that she's blessed. It causes us to think about how. We're blessed by what Jesus has done by coming into the world. She was blessed in this particular way, but we're blessed. Think about the words of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. It says there, it's by grace you've been saved. Through faith, this is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one may boast. And then it you know, finishes up saying, hey, we're created by God for his uh, purposes, to be uh, his workmanship. Uh, that that applies to you and to me. We're blessed by Jesus coming into the world, not in the same way that, that Mary was, but we're incredibly blessed graciously, freely due to nothing that we have done to deserve it. In fact, we deserve the opposite, but he's chosen to bless us as Mary prays and acknowledges how God has blessed her. Boy, that ought to sort of be on the tip of our tongues, too, as we're praying this month. Be so thankful for Jesus coming into the world to love us who are so unlovely in our natural state. Fourth thing we see is that Mary is learning to, uh, or is demonstrating her heart to revere God's name. Look at verse 48. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. So she's kind of continuing that blessing. But then look at the last couple of words. Holy is his name. Holy is his name. Uh, Biblically, that word holy has a dual kind of dual meaning. It means set apart or sliced off, if you want to think about it, or divided out. 
And it's just saying something that's special, that's offset, that has a unique place. And then, of course, it also means sort of the definition we would probably most of us give to it off the top of our heads. Uh, you know, righteous or pure or wonderful or great or good in every way. So holy is set apart and righteous in that way. And it's it's interesting. We were actually talking this morning in Sunday school about why we end our prayers. Speaking of Christmas prayers in Jesus name. And why does Mary say make a point to say holy is your name? Did you ever think about that? It's kind of an unusual thing. I can remember for myself growing up in the church, but not really cluing into the, the to the gospel. And for a season of my life, really pushing away the message of Christ that, that that when I did come to surrender my life to Christ and see my need for his mercy, that I still didn't, you know, kind of scratch my head. I, I, what is this name? Why? What's the fascination with the name? Is it like a magic spell? What is the deal? Well, the name just carries with it. All of the identity, all of the reputation, all of the characteristics and accomplishments of the person. You know, I think about it in this way. I'm sure I've used this illustration before, but my, my extended family are all from central Pennsylvania, from sort of small, you know, 10,000 population towns, that kind of area. And in uh, my my grandfather and some other family members, they, they were sort of small business people. So there's, there's a number of businesses that all have my last name attached to them. And so from my youngest years, when I would go to the, the town, you know, even if nobody knew anything else really about the, the family, they at least had some association. You know, I probably had some negative associations, too, uh, with our family. But there were some, you know, th- this is that family. That's the Peters. And this guy who's visiting, you know, with his dad. They live in Chicago, but they're visiting here in central Pennsylvania. We're, we're somehow associated, connected because of what? Because of the name. The name signifies something. And the same thing's true for each one of us. When you think about it, as people know you, uh, your name represents your identity and your identity includes all that you do, all of who you are, all that you've uh, accomplished, all of that's wrapped up in it. And when we think about the name of God, that's what we're talking about. So when we say, I pray in Jesus name, we're praying, please don't listen to me, God, because of me. I really don't want you to try to tune in to me because of me. Listen to me because I'm in Jesus. Because I'm riding on his train. I'm on his coattails because of all that he's done and who he is. Mary's acknowledging this. She's saying God's name is holy and set apart. And she's praying in that sense in his name, revering his name. The fifth thing we see in these verses is that she's responding to God's will. This one's a little bit uh, more hidden in the verses. But look with me at verse 50. It says in his mercy is for those who fear him. Okay? Those who fear him. That's kind of a ominous thing to think about fearing God, especially Christmas time, happy time, Advent, celebration time. But but isn't it isn't it interesting, you know, so many of the responses when the angels came and appeared to people, what was the first thing they said to the folks that they encountered? Fear not. Right? Angels represented the presence of God. And so, although to us, they're sort of snuggly things that we make stuffed animals about and cross stitch on our walls. They they they're they're imposing figures. They're powerful beings. They're intimidating to the people who encounter them. So the first thing they've got to say is, hey, you know, chill out. Don't be afraid. Because really, if we see God, 
And hopefully we are here as people coming and gathering today as we see God. We are rightly brought to a place of awe and reverence for him. If we're not in Christ, haven't received Christ, then we have reason to, to fear in that sense because we're separated from God. But but even as believers, we have reason to fear in a reverent and, and an awesome way of recognizing who uh, God is. And, and, and that ought to move us to live our lives in a certain way, right? We realize there's consequences if we step out a step from the Lord, not that we would be separated from him or lose our relationship with the Lord, but there's implications of it because God's righteous and he's to be awed and reverenced. And so, you know, one thing we might think about praying this Christmas season is in the midst of praying that we'd see Jesus and praying that we not get too distracted by the holidays and by the family difficulties and all the gifts we need to buy and the materialism is to pray, hey, God, I don't want this just to be sort of a um, just kind of me and you, me and Jesus thing. I really want this to transform me. I want this season to be a time when I'm changed. Mary is fearing God and obeying him and taking steps of faith by doing what he tells her to do. So she's kind of a model for that for us and how we can pray that God would change our hearts and redirect us in areas. Maybe it's areas of of sin where we know we're conscious of the fact that we're we, you know, prone to step out of, of relationship with the Lord that way. And, and maybe God would help us to deal with that. Maybe there's new ways, new places he wants us to to obey and and walk with him and, and put new behaviors or new characteristics in our life. And maybe this would be a season where we could pray for God to do that. We can't do that by our own power. If you've ever tried, it doesn't really work very well on your own strength. But through prayer, we can we can pray for that to happen. Sixth thing is that uh, we see Mary kind of leading us and leading the people in repentance uh, for uh, pride. Look at verse 51 and 52. He's shown strength with his arm. He scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts, and he's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Now, here's a sort of game changer. God's in the business of lifting up those who recognize they're needy, recognize that they're broken. Jesus says elsewhere in the Gospels, he didn't come for the healthy, but he came for those who are sick. He means those who who recognize that they need him. And then look, it, it doesn't even let us off the hook in this regard. It says he scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. So it's not just the actions that we take or the things that we say that are kind of saying, I want to live life without God. Now, now take out your typical definition of proud here. Now, we think pride, someone is, you know, walks around the office saying, oh, look at all the deals I've closed this month. Or, you know, another mom, oh, look at how great my kids are doing at school. You know, we kind of think that that's pride, that, that, that's prideful. But what Jesus is, what Mary's talking about here is the fact that Jesus confronts just that reality that we try to live life. Outside a relationship with God. That's biblical pride. That's saying I can do life uh, by myself, by my own two hands, instead of independence upon you. And the kings and the rulers are brought down. Why is that happening? Because they epitomize those who are in power. And when you're in power, when you have wealth, like many of us do living in America, when you have power and influence, like Many of us do maybe in our job or by virtue of our position in this particular country and time that we live in. It goes to your head. 
It gets to your mind. And we think prideful thoughts almost without even realizing it. So uh, we, we probably would want to add to our sort of Christmas prayer uh, routine to just, uh, like Mary, recognize the danger and really repent of that pride in the places that it's seeping into our hearts. A couple other thoughts and then we'll close. Uh, the, the next thing we see in the verses, verse 53, is that uh, Mary remembers. It goes along with what we just said. She remembers justice. Okay, look at verse 53. The hungry, he's filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. It's interesting. I read uh, one commentary by a guy named uh, Michael Wilcock, and he said this. And I thought about it related to some of the events that are going on in our country right now with Ferguson and. Uh, Now with New York and with demonstrations and with issues of justice and how they relate to race and all of those things that ought ought to be things, you know, we don't have to tune into everything that's on TV, but ought to be things we're concerned about as believers, right? It's interesting what Michael Wilcox says about about these particular verses, the Magnificat. Okay, we think Christmas time, celebration. Listen to what he says. He says, in many parts of the world, the Magnificat, this prayer, And similar scriptures are revolutionary songs which inspire and are held to justify Christian participation in political liberation movements. This is very upsetting, he says. Listen to this. This makes me think. So this is very upsetting for Christians in in those nations that are old enough or rich enough to want to only be left in peace, to enjoy their accustomed standard of living, and they are therefore attempted attempted. To spiritualize, merely spiritualize the Magnificat. He goes on, he says, but that's unfair to our brothers in the third world. This was written a while ago. I guess we call it the majority world today. Who feel there's no answer to their problems without the overthrow of the current system. This then is the question. When and in what sense and by what means will this happen? The forgiveness of sins is where the revolution has to begin. Before there can be a right relationship between man and man, there must be a right relationship between man and God. And the sin which spoils that must be repented of and sought to be removed. Right? I think this is kind of what folks, a lot of folks I saw on Facebook and whatnot, and then even on several news channels, uh, liked about the the note that was posted by the New Orleans Saints uh, wide receiver, tight end. I can't remember Benjamin uh, Watson, right? That's his name. I think this what resonated with people, although everybody has different, you know, understandably different viewpoints on some of this. And we may never know some of what really happened or what exactly would be justice because of the way. Things work. Only God maybe will know some of those things. But but what resonated about what he wrote, I think, was the fact that he pointed out that ultimately it's a sin issue. Right. It's a, a, a sin issue that m- maybe makes some police officers or others in authority uh, view people in a certain way simply because of race and to maybe use that authority in an overly powerful way, whether or not that happened with the particular incident or not. That's the truth. That's true. That's a sin issue. It's a sin issue too. the folks that are maybe uh, victimized in our culture that then have a tendency to respond in a certain way to the authority that's around them instead of in a positive way. That, that's, it's it's got to be worked out through Christ ultimately is the solution to that. And, and Benjamin Watson, I don't, he wasn't suggesting that there's not a place 
for making sure we have just and right laws and treat one another in that way. Again, whatever you think about that situation. But he was saying, ultimately, it's about Christ coming into the world, about redeeming us to him. And then we can be able to to see how we're off track in a lot of the ways we view other people socioeconomically as well as racially and other areas and have that redeemed so we relate to one another in a more righteous and a more godly way. Last thing we see in these verses, verse 54 and 55. Interesting. Okay, Mary, we, we don't know. We, we know really very little about her. I have no idea how much training she had. Was her family really devout? Did they go to the temple all the time? Did she read the Torah? Did she know the Old Testament? You know, we don't know all that. But listen, the last part of her prayer, it says, He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of mercy. He has spoken to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Be easy to miss these last couple of verses, but they're exciting to me. What is Mary recognizing? She's recognizing that she is riding a wave, a trajectory, just like you and I are today. If you're here and you're in Christ, your life has been woven into a story, a story that's in this book and in the history of God's people. And Mary's looking back and she's saying, you're being faithful to what you said you would do to your people. And those promises you made to Abraham that your offspring would be as, as many as the stars in the sky, they're coming true. And remember what Abraham did? says in uh, Genesis 15, 6, that he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's the gospel. That's the centerpiece of Mary's prayer through the work of Jesus in her life. Uh, may it be true for us in our prayers this Advent season as well. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we are indeed grateful for this, your word, and we ask that through it you would teach us to, uh, this month, have the specific application and the fresh lens to look on Jesus that we would grow in our prayer life and that we would learn how to pray through prayers like this prayer. Give us insight Lord, help us to see how all of it flows from the work of Christ and allow us to know him and walk with him more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.